No one digs this song more than you. <laughs> you know, whenever I hear it intro at first, I always think suddenly the static on our radio program just like <laughs> increase for some reason. I'm always Shot tempted to be roof. like, hey, why does this why is it so staticky? Three, two, one, burn it. Mm. And, and then, then you feel just, it. And then I feel it. That's static. That white noise really has a groove to it. <laughs> it does. It does. <laughs> hey everyone. Welcome to Business Casual. It is Friday morning. It is 8 o'clock Central Time. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. I'm your other host, Tyler Kern. It is August 9th. It's Friday. Congratulations. Oh, it is a glorious Friday. It's been a long week, Tyler. It's been a very long week. A lot going on, man. Yeah. Almost too much to talk about, as always. Agreed. As you wake up this morning, the Dow finished up yesterday, 371 points. The Nasdaq finished up as well, 176 points. The price of oil rose as well, $53.21 a barrel. With it being August 9th, Daniel, let's look at something uh, notable that happened on this day in history. Are you ready? I'm ready. Hit me with facts. On August 9th, 1974, former President Richard Nixon resigned as President of the United States, and Gerald Ford was sworn in. Oof. Not so much businessy, but uh, very, impactful. very notable. You know, I feel like we need to do a segment on changes in the economy, positive, negative, under different different presidents. I feel like that would be interesting. That and would like, be really interesting, but it's also one of those things that I don't know that you'd ever get a, yes, it was good under this person, oh, yeah. and no, it was bad. No, yeah, you I feel like it's I mean? always like that's that, I mean, other than like some focused, like, Great Recession, Great Depression. I mean, like, I'm not even going to pretend to know. I know all the intricacies of the American economy and its history. But I do think each presidency has, like, its boosts and its drops, even within specific markets. You know, some markets can can boom and others can be busts. Yeah. So thank you for that little tidbit because now my brain is wheeling and we might have uh, some segments coming up here in the near future. <laughs> we'll have to dive in and do a deep dive on this one. Oh, yeah. Speaking of deep dives, our own Jeffrey Short has the short list for this week. You just made the list. The short list. And he's got stories all over the place. He's going to talk Disney, Amazon, and FedEx, as well as back-to-school spending. So here's Jeffrey Short with this week's short list. Hi, everybody. This is Jeffrey Short, and this is the short list for Friday, August 9th. The Magic Kingdom is keeping an eye on cord cutting. Disney announced a new bundled streaming service this week, which includes ESPN Plus and Hulu as it braces for the future of television. Here's what company CEO Bob Iger told CNBC's Julia Borston. Are we concerned about cord cutting? Yes, that's been an important business for us. But it's the reason why we're going into this other space, why we're pivoting strategically to give us an opportunity not only contend with the transformation that's going on in the traditional space, but to um, to thrive in basically completely different marketplace under different marketplace conditions. Disney's bundle will sell for twelve ninety nine. Amazon has plenty of items available for twelve ninety nine, but they'll be getting to your doorstep a little differently from now on. The company and FedEx announced the end of their partnership this week. Bloomberg News columnist Brooke Sutherland broke down what this signals. To me, this reflects the fact that. Amazon is becoming a much more legitimate competitor in logistics, and FedEx has sort of waved this off, but I think they're having to come to grips with the fact that Amazon is out there. They're not slowing down. They're, you know, getting cargo planes. They're investing in delivery drivers, and they clearly have ambitions here. 
the partners turned rivals have become less and less reliant on each other over the last two years. FedEx stated that less than 1.3% of its total revenue in 2018 came from Amazon. There should be plenty of revenue coming into retailers in August as kids go back to school. Here's Fox Business's Maria Bartiromo on just how much money might be exchanged before classes start. And it is back to school shopping. It is big business. Parents on pace for some heavy uh, and hefty spending. This year, it's expected to hit $80.7 billion. Just back to school. The NRF has tracked back to school shopping since 2003 and expects families to spend approximately $22 more this year for K through 12 students and $54 more for college students year over year. That's what's making news today in the world of B2B. I'm Market Scale Digital Editor Jeffrey Short. I wonder how much of that back to school spending is tied to technology. That's a really good question. Has back to school spending increased since kind of uh, technology has entered the classroom more and more and more and more kids go to school now with laptops, iPads, right. things like that? Right. That's but, a really good question. And I wonder if that technology um, cost gets fronted by the taxpayer and uh, by you know the schools themselves uh, because we do see a lot of schools and school districts investing in technology in the classroom for the very reason that a lot of families cannot afford an iPad or cannot afford, I mean, even a a smartphone for their kids. So being, um, being presented to that technology and having access to it early on, I think is important. So yeah, I, I wonder what the tech spending is. We'll have to do some little research on that, but, but yeah, it's, it's cool to see, um, like I, I never, mind seeing um costs go towards education yeah. and school supplies. I mean, I will complain about my exorbitant um textbook fees <laughs> that I, you know, still am confused by. Um but overall, you know, I think investing in education, even if that means investing in a pack of pack of colored pencils, uh, I think is important. Yeah, absolutely. And this is actually tax free weekend here in Texas. Woo! August 9th through the 11th. Yeah, exactly. And so... Wait, is that for everything? Not everything. It's... <laughs> I don't believe it's for everything, <laughs> so actually. I, I, have to, I have to calculate how much income tax I will not pay in two days and then detract that? According to the Comptroller <laughs> website, it says, during this annual sales tax holiday, you can buy most clothing, footwear, school supplies, and backpacks tax-free from a Texas store or from an online or catalog seller doing business in Texas. That's what I really wanted to know. That means I'm going to be hitting up Urban Outfitters and exactly. some clothes, a little tax-free action. I love that. We're the size of high schoolers. Yeah. It works. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that Amazon FedEx split is also interesting. Um, we covered this on our Market Scale Mornings, but uh, Amazon shipping only... Uh, it was like a very minimal percentage. One point three percent. Yeah, yeah. Almost, excuse me. FedEx says Amazon was one point three percent of their business. Correct. Yeah. Which I mean, I wouldn't say is negligible, but it's so small that I wonder how much of an impact it's going to be for Amazon to now be running their own fleet of uh, delivery trucks, and if that's going to actually create some tensions and competition between FedEx and UPS. My question is. 
you know, will FedEx eventually regret kind of floating Amazon for this period of time as Amazon figures out its own logistics system, you know, and its own right. you know, fleet and everything like that? And then when Amazon is a juggernaut and FedEx is struggling, if that does in fact happen, they stomp is FedEx, them. <laughs> yes. Is FedEx going to look back and be like, we helped them get here. What were we doing? <laughs> That's very, uh, very Star Wars, very, you know, the apprentice now becomes the master. Yeah, and this is <laughs> this is one of those things that, that Brian Eisenberg is always all over, and uh, he was on our show a couple weeks ago uh, just kind of breaking down some uh, some more of Amazon's moves and shakes. But that's kind of one of those things that I'm thinking about. I'm like, man, I, I kind of wonder if FedEx eventually regrets the last couple of years of helping Amazon out and getting them to a point where now Amazon's like, we don't actually need you. We can afford to build our own fleet, and that's yeah. what we're going to do. Well, let's hope it's healthy competition and not crushing competition yeah, for FedEx. That, that, that would be bad for FedEx. Yeah. And then Disney streaming services, uh, Jeff mentioned as well. Really intrigued to see how that gets rolled out. I did see that uh, Hulu is going to be packaged with Disney Plus as well as ESPN Plus, which is really intriguing to me, and it looks like it's going to be a good deal. Uh, I think I saw 12 or 13 bucks. That That's something I'm into. Yeah, I mean, I know that's exciting for you. You will be saving net money to have more streaming options. Um, it also... Raises the question in my mind, like, is this another primer for Disney to now maybe down the line purchase these streaming platforms? And then that kind of brings the conversation back around to does Disney really need to own more media? I know. Um, I don't know. It's kind of it's kind of freaky. But at the same time, like the, the content is interesting to the consumer. I guess we'll have to see what kind of impact this actually has on media going forward. We'll have to do a deep dive on that one, too. Yeah, wow. I, I think everybody has always wanted a la carte type stuff right like oh we should get this and i just want to pay for just the things i want well when you start to segment things like that people start to charge what they feel like their content is worth and i feel like this is a fair price for disney but then you're going to add that on to what you pay for hbo what you pay for netflix what you pay and all of a sudden like this a la carte idea looks a very much like your cable cable bill has always looked yeah man that's that's the one thing that i'm I'm really curious to see how that uh jives with consumers well yeah just the the streaming paradigm I don't think it's the final, like, note on the media timeline. Mm. Like, I think it's going to continue to evolve in the same way that when Netflix entered the the scene, everyone was like, OMG, this is so affordable, so accessible, this is revolutionary. Now everyone's doing that. Now that's the standard, and you're yeah. right. You're paying about the same as your cable bill to get all the access you want to all the same channels that you used to watch. So... I don't know. It's strange. I I feel like soon we're going to see something else hit the market that totally flips streaming on its head Mm -hmm. and is going to make it once again cheaper and more accessible. And uh, I bet that's going to shake up the paradigm. Yeah, we'll just have to see what happens down the road. One of the other big stories we're following today is that China has announced uh, that they're going to stop buying U.S. agricultural products. Now, this is a a big deal. The Chinese Commerce Ministry announced that China will no longer be buying American agricultural products whatsoever. Exports to China are now down $1.3 billion in 2019 compared to the same period in 2018 Daniel, we have a little clip from Aditi Roy on CNBC talking about this very topic that I'd like to play for you right now. The American Farm Bureau Federation calls the announcement a body blow to thousands of farmers and ranchers who are already struggling to get by. The group's economists estimate exports to China were down $1.3 billion during the first half of 2019 compared to the same period last year. The organization also notes U.S. farmers stand to lose all of the nearly $9 billion market in 2018 if trade tensions continue. 
So that doesn't sound good. China made up $5.9 billion in the U.S.'s farm product exports in 2018, according to the U.S. Census. It's the world's top buyer of soybeans and purchased roughly 60% of U.S. soybean exports last year. So I think the question here is that this is this has always been a game of, of poker. Who's going to blink first yeah. in, in this case? And earlier this week, there was a blink by China that kind of boosted the U.S. markets and, and things were kind of looking good. The question is, is that... This is this is what's being asked on, on the part of the president is for farmers and for people that are being you know negatively affected by tariffs here in the United States to wait out long enough to deal with the negative effects long enough for it to eventually pay off in the end is is kind of the way that that's that it's being spun yeah and you kind of wonder with an election coming up in 2020 will Heartland American voters. Uh, farmers, manufacturers, people like that that really rolled out for Trump in 2016, will they support him again when they've seen the negative effects of how tariffs have impacted right. them uh, in 2020? And and that, I think, has to be a concern. Well, you know, just farmers in general, uh, you know, their livelihood is based on so many variables, and it's such a fragile ecosystem that they already work in. It just makes it very difficult when trade wars impact one of the most vulnerable communities, I think, of, of – I mean, I guess you could say entrepreneurs, basically. I mean, they run, they run their own small farms. They're the core of like traditional American economy, and they often get left behind during these gambles, during these – like you said, these poker games, which, I mean, are important. Uh, we want our trade um, – across the globe to be fair and to treat the american people fairly right uh but right now the consequence to try and reach that is that it's crushing the american farmer um i know the u.s federal government has already pledged to give 28 billion dollars in financial assistance but a lot of farmers are saying the issue is just deeper than a bailout and a bailout is not going to it's not really going to save them. It might hold them over for a little bit. Right. But like you said, will that be enough? Um, just in general, markets have shifted and they've, they've put pressure on farmers to lower their prices. So like you said, soybeans. China's now turning to Brazil for their soybeans. China's now importing their wheat from Russia. China was the fourth largest wheat buyer in the world between 2016 2017. Now, in 2019, China's not even in the U.S.'s top 10, which is, is a dramatic shift. Mm-hmm. And they've had to lower their prices to try to stay competitive to the point of now they're losing money per acre just to grow their crops. And it's bad timing in general because there's more bad news for a good chunk of farmers in the country. Um, In Nebraska and Wyoming, a 100-year-old tunnel that carries irrigation water across more than 100 miles collapsed, which means now chunks of farmland are parched. And this is a critical point of the growing cycle. And now without water, it leaves hundreds of farmers who already had to lower their grain prices over several years, you know, leaves them in a dire situation. So I really think we need to keep the conversation around how are farmers doing under this tumultuous economy um, and these trade wars, because even if the end goal is uh, done with good intentions, we just can't keep crushing the American farmer. They just won't last. So that's something we're going to continue to follow here on Business Casual. But coming up next, we have an interview with Mike Wallace, the creative director at Falcons Creative Group. And Mike is on the line right now. Mike, thank you so much for being here this morning. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having me again, Daniel. 
Hey, yeah, it's super excited to have you on. So, Mike, the reason we've got you on the call today is because Disney announced its latest quarter report earnings and their shares dropped the lowest they've been since August of 2015. Now, there are several reasons why that happened, but it was bookmarked by extremely low turnout to their Star Wars Galaxy's Edge theme park attraction at Disneyland in L.A. And I wanted to get some of your thoughts on what you think maybe went wrong with this anticipated attraction. Are you shocked by this story and by the low engagement uh, that we're now seeing at uh, Galaxy's Edge? Well, I, I think I'm more shocked by the spin that it's getting. You know, we when we see these new attractions opening up, we expect there to be lines out the gate. We expect there, you know, you take um, maybe Hagrid's motorbike adventure that recently opened up at Universal, and they use this 10-hour wait that that thing had on opening day as a marketing point. I think Disney, strategically, in my opinion, avoided that by saying, we're going to make sure that our guests have the best experience possible, even if that means limiting access to this land while we're figuring out how it all works, while, while our operators are kind of getting their feet wet in this new fully immersive environment that they've created. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... I think what they created is so detailed and, you know, they also opened it with only one major attraction, which, you know, naturally is probably going to put the, like, it's going to make people want to wait a little bit until maybe there's a second ride. Maybe it's more worth their money to actually show up. And I, I, I think perhaps, you know, they they put a little too much faith in the Star Wars name and almost overestimated what a Star Wars brand theme park would turn out. Uh, you know, I think this was especially marked by their marketing rollout where they yeah. actively discouraged people from coming due to an assumed demand for the Star Wars brand name. They took reservations, they restricted annual pass holder access, they raised one-day right. ticket prices, and hotel rooms in the area raised their rates as well. Have you ever seen a rollout plan like this before? I mean, do you feel like this had an impact on um, on the turnout in, in the first few months of Galaxy's Edge? I think it did, and I think it was. it's more of a unique situation that Anaheim has there, you know, uh, Disneyland, their attendance is largely driven by locals and annual pass holders to my knowledge. I I don't claim to be an expert on their, uh, their operations, but when I, when I see that they are giving out reservations and they're guaranteeing me four hours in the land, if I come on this day at this time as an annual pass holder or as a local, that means I don't have to worry about getting there at the crack of dawn. I don't have to worry about waiting six hours to get into a land or anything like that. So it's going to discourage me from being at the park other than during my allotted time. When your park is driven by that demographic of people, it's naturally going to fall off a little bit outside of that land. I think what they did um, in limiting the number of people in the land itself may have been more along the lines of that operational building that I was talking about. I actually uh, was fortunate enough to be able to attend a preview of the Galaxy's Edge here in Orlando last weekend, and this place is spectacular from a design, from a theming, from an attention to detail, from a level of immersion. Um, it is it is the new high watermark in terms of, of themed entertainment design. The fact that it had one attraction didn't really bother me at all. The one attraction was running smoothly when I was there, and it eats bodies up. So I don't think there's ever going to really be an issue in terms of long waits. 
this is Smuggler's Run, the, the Millennium Falcon attraction. Right. He's saying that the land may have struggled because it only had one ride instead of two. It's unheard of, really, that you open a new theme park land with two must-ride e-ticket attractions. Sure. Um, Diagon Alley might have been a, a bit of a comparable in that sense because it had the Hogwarts Express and it had Gringotts Bank. Um, but that's that's a little a little distant from this because Hogwarts Express is more of a connection between the two existing lands. So I think um, I think what's happening is Disney is gearing up for a larger rollout and larger expected attendances in this park by just playing it safe and kind of keeping their cars close to their chest. So, you know, I know you've been a creative director with Falcons Creative Group for a while now. You've worked as a scenic designer and a master planner and facility design manager for, and I'm, I'm just going to tout some of your, uh, your work here because I think it's really, really interesting. Um, you've worked on large-scale projects like Universal's Halloween Horror Nights, Volcano Bay, Water Theme Park, as well as the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, Diagon Alley. Um, so, you know, you, you've really had your hand in building fresh um, you know, fresh narratives. You've really had a hand in building familiar narratives. Do you think mm-hmm. there was anything missing or anything you would have changed about the content narrative at Galaxy's Edge that you think maybe would have worked better, would have attracted more people, even though there's only, you know, one ride and then it's more of a, um, you know, it's more of an immersive experience than a ride experience? Yeah, I- I mean, the only the only criticism that I feel like I could offer after having been there um, is that they made a conscious decision to put this land in current day, in current universe, and they want it to be immersive so that you can live out your own Star Wars story. I feel like there's there's some risk in that, just in the sense that if I've been a fan of Star Wars since 1977, I want to see the characters that I grew up with as a kid. I, I may not want to go there specifically to see new trilogy or, or something like that, but that as a decision to move fully immersive and move to, to current day, that's where all theme parks are going, in my opinion. You want people to feel like it's their story. You want them to be immersed to the highest level you can possibly have them immersed. And when we start seeing, you know, the integration of the hotel that they're planning here in Orlando, when we start to see people coming into this land and actually activating the various land interactive pieces that are planned and, and building their own avatar, their own Star Wars likeness in that system, I think all of this criticism at this point is just going to melt away. And it's going to be, this is the only place that I can feel this connected to the IP that I love. Yeah, I mean, I think at its core, it, it it is a like I mean, it's it's basically the pinnacle of um, fandom for a lot of Star Wars lovers, me included. I mean, I would love to step into the Millennium Falcon. So after I save up a little money, I will make the flight out to L.A. I will go visit. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think from a personal perspective, I think the attention to detail and the rollout was was really really cool and. I'm not upset <laughs> that they went in this direction, that they went in the OG, uh, you know, or actually, no, the anti-OG, the fresh perspective. Um, I'm I'm glad they tried something new. I guess we're just going to have to wait and see if it had something to do with maybe L.A. specifically, if it had something to do with the kind of people that visit Dis- uh, Disneyland, um, or, you know, if maybe it did have something to do with that marketing rollout and they're going to try something different with Orlando. 
I think I think you could look at it from there's going to be these two opposing points of view. One is the shareholders may have missed their mark by a couple of dollars a share, but there are no guests that are complaining about the experience they had in that place. Right. And if if Disney wants to put their guests ahead of the the stock price for a month or two, more power to them. That's exactly the way that I want the industry to go. Well, that's Mike Wallace. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Mike, and giving us your perspective there on Disney and Galaxy's Edge. Oh, I'm happy to. Thanks. Thanks, Mike. Absolutely. So we're going to step aside for 30 seconds. Just take a quick 30-second break. When we get back, we're going to talk about San Jose, Ooh. maybe bringing in some new electronic billboards. We're going to talk about that and so, so much more. So stick around. We'll be right back. Are you tired of all job postings looking the same and want to find a way to help yours stand out? Get yourself a market scale JobCast. JobCasts are a compelling piece of recruitment content that differentiate your job post above all the others. What is a JobCast, you might ask? They're a short podcast that gets to the heart of what makes your company unique and stand out in a world full of copycats and cheap knockoffs. Once produced, the JobCast can be added to your job posting and put on your website. Stop getting lost in the job board shuffle and start standing out with a market scale JobCast. All right, Daniel, we are back from that quick 30-second break. Hey, yo. In San Jose, they've decided that they've got too many old and kind of run-down billboards. <laughs> yeah, no one likes peeling vinyl. No, nobody does, as it turns <laughs> out. Uh, even uh, so, so people, you know, city leaders have been talking about this, saying, you know, we've got all of these billboards that are just kind of a blight on the city, re- really. So they've come up with a plan to install a bunch of new electronic signage around the city. Um, and, and this is kind of an exciting development, I think, just to kind of see a, a city really embracing this and it not be, um, you know, Times Square or something like that. This mm-hmm. is just, it's San Jose. They're saying, hey, we don't like some of the eyesore of, uh, of some of the billboards we have around. What can we do to really modernize? What can we do to improve, you know, the experience of being in San Jose? And they're trying out electronic signage, and I think it's a great move. Yeah, you know, I love when uh, AV distributors uh, or AV companies almost partner with municipalities or reach out to entire communities to try to show them how impactful digital signage and AV technology can be on not only convenience, on wayfinding, and on like making your city more accessible and um, and you know e- easier to convey information, but also just from an aesthetic perspective. Uh, I love. I mean, I don't love that they call the vinyl signs blight. I mean, it's mm. sad, but <laughs> at the same time, I also kind of love it because. What it's doing is it shows that these municipalities have an eye for this stuff. They're they're noticing that, yeah, our big old GoDaddy, you know, uh, billboards <laughs> that have been up for 20 years and are peeling and, you know, you can't even tell what the original colors were. That's not really that great of a look for our city, especially as if you're driving in and it's one of the first things you see on the highway. Now imagine replacing that with something engaging, something fluid, uh, and something bright and colorful like a, a, a digital display board. Right. Uh, I really see the value in it, and I think it can at least get people more excited about these future technologies because this is not a future technology anymore. It's really standardized. It's really accessible, and it's not that expensive. And I think that if municipalities get on board with tech like this mm-hmm. and they do it on a large scale, 
that only opens the door for more adventurous rollouts like smart city technology, like upgraded futuristic public transit. You know, this is like the step one of that larger transformative city change, at least in my opinion. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm excited to see it. And as LED becomes more accessible to kind of the larger public, um, I I think it becomes a a product that is more easily uh, used by municipalities, like you mentioned. Uh, Daniel, let's wrap up the show today with a new segment. How do you feel about that? I love it. I'm ready. All right. It's called the comment section. Daniel, explain the idea behind the comment section. So basically the comment section is us giving opinions on opinions, which is basically what a comment section looks like nowadays. What we're going to be doing is we find an op-ed or a very opinionated piece of news out there covering something B2B related. And then Tyler and I are going to kind of break down some of the points that said writer gave and then we are going to give our own opinions on those opinions so it's a lot of fun it's probably the most subjective segment on business casual which is why i love it because opinions are fun so (laughs) this particular uh story is called the trouble with tablets okay so it's an op-ed in grub street by clint rainey so basically this article is trying to get across that tablets at the table in restaurants might not be so good for business. Um, So this was back in 2018, but 200,000 touchscreen devices are now in 8,000 different U.S. eateries. So you have have different companies like BuzzTime at Buffalo Wild Wings. You have Ziosk at Chili's and Olive Garden and on the border and Margaritaville. You've got Presto, which is a a very similar um, platform to Ziosk there at Applebee's and Outback. So the question is, are tablets good for business? Here's one little segment Clint said. So while mo- and and I quote, so while most marketing focuses on increased profits and greater productivity, workers increasingly say these devices are creating a problem so dystopic and obvious that you might swear it was a plot from last season's Black Mirror. Wow. Yeah, it's 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 a little hefty. I I don't know. I mean, after reading through the article, I don't know if I'd call it dystopic. Um, but it's interesting to see uh, Clint frame it this way um, that, you know, these tablets can be causing so much drama at the restaurant. I feel like for the most part, the tablets have just made the ordering process easier for the consumer. I, I haven't really read much uh, dissent from the consumer. What's interesting, though, is that the people that work at, you know, at these restaurants, your servers, they're the ones that are expressing concern. Um, because now uh, they're basically saying these tablet companies are are giving the end user more access to fill out customer satisfaction surveys through their platform, actually 50% more likely to complete them. And that means easier access to these surveys and a renewed emphasis on scores to reflect server performance means their jobs are now getting graded through a faceless anonymous survey, which... I guess can be a little dystopic if you want to give it the Black Mirror spin. Man, so <laughs> I was at a restaurant recently and used one of these. Yeah, um, It was on the table, and it was such a crappy process. Really? Honestly. Oh, you didn't like it. I did not like it. And one of the big things was that um, it, since like it was kind of a larger party and everyone was wanting to kind of pay separately or pay in couples and that kind of thing, um, somebody had the, the waiter still had to come by and insert your ticket number into the machine. So even though I was done, this thing is sitting there saying, hey, you can pay now. You still had to wait for the waiter to come back over. It was a really busy night. It was after a concert. And I was like, I would rather just 
interact with things the way that I always have. Like the waiter's still having to come around and now he's just doing a bunch of stuff on a tablet instead. Uh, it's not easier for him. It's not helping me at all. Like it didn't improve my experience really. Right. And the first one, the card reader wasn't working. And so it was like, all right, give me that one, you know, right. from down the table. I don't know. Like, um, Maybe this technology just hasn't reached maturity yet, which is altogether possible. I, I think there's a way that this could be made easier in the future. But right now, anyways, I did not have an awesome experience. Yeah. Well, here's another quote from the article. And I quote, BuzzFeed's report. And so, okay, obviously this is a BuzzFeed report. BuzzFeed's report even recounted the true story of a disgruntled customer who demerited a server simply because his chilies didn't stock its bar with fireball cinnamon whiskey. <laughs> Which uh, I find hilarious and also very sad. Um, Hilarious because that's funny. Well, okay, first, don't demerit someone over Fireball. I mean, I feel like there are more more agreed-upon liquors that I would demerit a server on for not having in the bar. Also, it's very clearly not your server's fault. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, like... (laughs) Your server's not not the restaurant manager. It's not like he's drinking the the Fireball. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I yeah. mean, though, I would have to commend him if he chugged a whole bottle of Fireball before continuing service. I've watched the video of someone do that. It's <laughs> that not, sounds painful. It's not pretty. I mean, yeah, basically, what's the consensus here? It sounds like this technology could make the process more useful, um, or excuse me, could make the process just easier, more streamlined. But like you said, right now, it just kind of feels like they're swapping out pen and paper and printed laminated menus now for just tablets because they're tablets. And it hasn't really made the process any more efficient. If anything, it's made the process scarier for your server because now, you know, something reflected poorly in the kitchen. If food doesn't come out right, whatever. Now that means they might get a dock on their score, and then that's going to mean, who knows, pay cut, firing, not fun. Yeah, I get that. Clint Rainey, maybe you did have a point with dystopic Black Mirror future. <laughs> that, that may be overstating it, but I, I don't I don't hate it. I don't hate it I at don't. all. Daniel, I think that's going to do it for this week's episode of Business Casual. I think it is. It makes me sad. I always look forward to Friday mornings with you in here. It's a good time, man. It's a great time. So, everyone, thank you for listening to Business Casual. We'll be back again Friday, 8 a.m. Central. Also, keep an eye out for Wednesdays, 8 a.m. Central. We're going to be messing around with that time slot. We're wanting to eventually do three days a week of this. For now, we're definitely locked in for Fridays. But keep an eye out for Wednesday mornings because those might be on your purview very soon. Exactly. Daniel? I'm your host, the voice of B2B. I'm I'm your other host, Tyler Kern. (laughs) And I will not say my name again. We'll see you next week. (laughs) Bye, friends.